Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, so we started a, a new book uh, in the Torah, and uh, before we begin the talk, uh, this is uh, these words of Torah are, are, are dedicated to Yitzhak Yisrael Ben Brindel, and uh, we should all have him in mind um, for a refor uh, shleima, a complete uh, recovery. We should just hear good news for him and for all of Israel and the whole world. Um, so, so we're starting a new book of the Torah, uh, the book of Shmos, which uh, literally means um, names. That's the direct translation. And uh, in English, we call it the book of Exodus. And actually, if you look at the very first uh, Pasuk, the very first passage in the book, it's very interesting. It says, and these are the names of the children of Israel who are coming to Egypt with Jacob. Each man in his household came. Um, I was very struck by that. Looking at it this time, it doesn't say these are the people who came. It said these are the names that came down into Egypt. So, um, so anyway, uh, I'd like to think more about that on another occasion. <laughs> but there's something, you know, we, we talk about in English, we have a phrase that one's name precedes them. And, and uh, just these are the names that came down into Egypt, you know. Anyway, we'll talk about it some more another time, God willing. Um, but what's so, uh, what's so striking about this book is it's about, it's about the servitude, the, the slavery that we experienced in Egypt. But at the same time, everybody knows it's also about the redemption from Egypt. So it's simultaneously about slavery and about redemption. They're both going on at the same time, especially in the beginning of the book. And um, it's this duality, it's this duality that we have to live with. Um, one of the things that struck me last year that gave me sort of like a whole different understanding of leaving Egypt was the classic understanding is, is the following, that that. God, with, through his servant Moshe, is taking the Jewish people out of Egypt and he's bringing them to Israel. That's how most people understand it, right? But I, I want to add something which that's actually incorrect on a deeper level. How could that be incorrect? Because God is taking us out of Egypt and he's bringing us back to Israel. We were already in Israel. Jacob and the 70 souls were already in Israel. We're going back to Israel. We're not going to Israel. We're going back to Israel. It's a whole other level. It's a whole other way of understanding it. Remember what the Gomorrah says, that when we're in our mother's womb, there's an angel teaching us the entire Torah. And this whole lifetime is a rediscovery of what we know. It's a going back. We're not trying to get to the Garden of Eden. We're trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. We've already been into the Garden of Eden. Now this whole concept of getting back to the truth from a place of untruth, or said a different way, of a place of duality. I just learned this from Rabbi Gandhi in a very, very interesting numerical way. Listen to this. It's, it, it, uh, you can go over this uh, by yourself with a pen and a piece of paper. You can just remember the concept, but I'll try to say it. I'll try to say it slowly. It's not so hard to follow. We have the word for truth, 
which is emet, and we have the root, the word uh, in Hebrew. Remember, Hebrew is we say lashon hakodesh, which means the holy tongue. So there are qualities to the Hebrew language which um, aren't found in in any other in any other source. Um, we know that God looked into the Torah and He created the world. He created the world. Our mystic tradition tells us out of the Hebrew letters. And as I always like to say, Reb Shlomo said that when the wind blows through the trees, the rustling of the leaves is in Hebrew, right? The sound of nature is in Hebrew. So there's, there are all sorts of fascinating dynamics that you only see in the Hebrew language. So here's, here's one of them. Bless you. So, so we know the first letter of the Torah is the letter Bez. That's the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. First comes Aleph, then comes Bez. Okay? Um, all the letters, the, the Medrash t- teach us, came before God and each requested to be the first letter of the Torah. And for various reasons, all the letters, there was a reason why they couldn't begin the Torah. Uh, Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which has the gamacha, the numerical equivalent of one, and you know, that's our whole religion, God is one. And God's oneness permeates all of existence. You would think intuitively the Torah should begin with the letter Aleph. In fact, we know the letter Aleph has all sorts of mystical qualities. It's actually composed of three different letters, two Yuds and a Vav. And if you break that down, Yud plus Yud, 10 plus 10 is 20, Vav is 6, that's 26, which is the numerical equivalent of God's holiest name, the Yud K Vav K, is also 26. In other words, very, very good reasons why the Torah should begin with the letter Aleph. And yet, what does the Medrash say? Aleph stands for Aur, which means cursed. How could it be? How could it be that there could be any correlation between the letter Aleph and the word cursed? But that's what the Medrash says. So we have to try to understand what that means. Meanwhile, Bez, the second letter of the, the Torah, the second letter of the, of the alphabet, gets to be the first letter of the Torah. Why? The Medrash says Bez stands for Baruch, which means blessed. An equally confounding question. Bez stands for duality. It stands for body and soul, truth and lies, heaven and earth, physicality and spirituality. How could it be all these opposites? All these opposites. How can the Torah begin with a realm of opposites? And that we call blessed. Okay, so... So, so now listen to this. I want to tell you this, this thing from, with, these, with these numbers. It's fascinating, actually. And we'll get deeper into this. We'll start here and we're going to go deeper. The word for truth in Hebrew is emet. Aleph, mem, tav. If you add up the numbers of that, aleph, mem, tav, it adds up to 441. Now we have a form of gematria. It's called misfar katan where after you get the numerical equivalent, you, can t- you continue to add them until you get the most boiled down number. So 441 turns into the number 9. 4 plus 4 plus 1 is 9. So in other words, the, the numerical distillation of the concept of truth in Lashon HaKodesh, in the Holy Tongue, correlates with the number 9. Okay? Now, let's look at the word for lies, for falsehood in Hebrew. Sheker. Sheker adds up to 600. Shin and Kuf and Reish. 300 and 200 and 100. 
adds up to 600. The mispar cotton would be the number 6. So lies boil down to the number 6, truth to the number 9. All right? Now, with that as an introduction, listen to the following thing. If you start with the base of Breshi, the way the Torah starts, if you start with the concept of duality first, in other words, remember, this is our life in this world. We have to take this out of the realm of math for a moment <laughs> and make sure that we're communicating the amazing point that this is going to illustrate. Let's get to the point first and then we'll show the illustration afterwards. The point is, is that this is a world of confusion. The word for world in Hebrew and the world, the word for hiddenness, it's the same word. Ayin, lam, and mem. Olam has the same root as the word for hiddenness because God and truth itself is hidden in this world. We have to understand that. So we're born into this world where truth is concealed. And we have to discover truth. In fact, one of the striking things about this week's Parsha is when God gives Moses the mission to take the Jews out of Egypt, he gives it to Moses by the burning bush. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Look at the events itself. How did it happen? Moshe's out in the desert, and he sees there's this burning bush. He goes, that's strange. It's on fire but it's not being consumed. It's not being burnt up. It's on fire, but it's remaining whole at the same time. That's a miracle. That, that's not normal. He goes in, he takes a look, he investigates, and then God speaks to him and says, take the Jews out of Egypt. A turning point in the whole history of the world. The Katskarebi says, many people saw the burning bush and no one stopped to look. No one stopped to look. So what does that tell us? That tells us redemption comes through investigation. The whole redemption of the world happened because someone needed to take a closer look at what they saw with their own eyes. So this world begins with duality. Our lives begin with confusion. Our lives are born into hiddenness. And it's up to us to investigate. Now we can get back to the math. <laughs> Start with the number two. Add two, three, and four. Right? Start with two. Start with hiddenness. Start with duality. Add two, three, and four. And what do you get? Nine, which is truth. Okay? Let's do it again. Two, three, four. Now, five, six, and seven. Add those together. What do you get? I'm sorry? 18. 18. Add 8 and 1 together. Nine. 9. Truth. Okay? Now, let's do it the other way. Let's start from the standpoint of the letter Aleph. The standpoint of oneness. Let's say you're born into clarity. Right? 1, 2, and 3 add up to what? 6. Which is Shekir. Which is lies. Right? 1, 2, and 3. How about 4, 5, and 6? Fifteen. Five and one is six. Back to lies. <laughs> then what's the... Then the Seven, then, eight, nine. It's Fifteen, twenty-four, twenty-four, six. Okay, very good. 
The next letter, it goes right back. Each time it goes back to six if you start from one. Because truth for us, truth for us has to be arrived at. We have to arrive at the truth. We start with duality. That's our life in this world. We start with duality and we investigate. We say, how could that be? How could there be so many planets in the world? How could there be so many trillions of stars and they don't crash into each other? How could there be such an order to this world? We investigate and then we realize, wow, there's a plan. There's a plan. Everything has, everything has a path. Everything has a path. Subatomic particles have a path. Fish have a path. Everyone knows that, you know, you go by certain streams and the same time of the year, the fish come upstream. That's where they catch the fish. The birds in San Juan Capistrano, the birds, every single certain day of the year, they all go by the same place. The planets themselves, every single level you see in creation, everything follows a plan, including mankind. But what's the difference? We have free will. We have the, we have the ability to deny that there's a plan. It doesn't mean that there isn't a plan. It just means that we have the ability to deny that there's a plan. And that's our free choice. That's also the letter base. We can go either direction. That's up to us. But when we choose the right direction of the two, when we choose right instead of wrong, then that becomes Baruch, that becomes blessed. And if we don't have free choice, like it says angels stand before God, they see the clarity of God, although they don't see the completeness of God. They just see the oneness. They don't have free choice. That's our That's cursed because they can't rise higher. It says angels in the next world, wherever you reach after one's 120 years in this world, that's where you are. Whereas human beings can rise and rise and rise and rise. That's our special blessing. Okay. So now, so now let's go further. So we start with this place of duality. And we go further. So we said, we said that this is the book that begins and it talks about our our slavery, but it's also the book of redemption also. And we offered, which I learned in the name of Reb Labela Eger, the working definition for exile. Exile is thinking that because today is like today, and yesterday was like yesterday, that means tomorrow is going to be like today, and tomorrow is going to be like yesterday. That's exile. One has to understand that the future is unwritten. To quote a bumper sticker, or maybe the clash. (laughs) It's not tied to the moment before. It's not tied to the moment before. You know, I'll tell you uh, an example of this that I always liked. You know, if you look at a line, you draw a line like with a pencil, it looks like a solid object, right? But the reality is, if anyone remembers from math class growing up, a line is actually composed of an infinite number of dots. Each dot is a separate, independent entity. 
But when you look at them all together, it looks like a solid entity. It's not. Your eye is being tricked. Your eye is being tricked. They're separate individual points. So I say to myself, let's say, to give a, you know, one example in life. Let's say uh, I'm on a diet. And let's say I'm walking toward the refrigerator right now. I'm about to break my diet. I'm walking toward the refrigerator. And now I say to myself, ah, I really shouldn't do this. And then I say to myself, ah, I'm walking toward it anyway. I'm already within the solidity of the line. My choice has already been made. I can't escape from it. But then if you realize, no, a line is composed of separate individual points, you realize at any moment I'm free to do anything that I want. I can go in any direction that I want, at any point that I want. Just because I'm walking to the car in order to go to the drug dealer to buy drugs, so I turn around. (laughs) Who says I have to continue walking toward the car? I turn around. You know, one of the most awesome things that I ever was blessed to see in the Torah itself was that when the Jews are going through their various points, their journeys in the desert, at a certain point, God says, go back toward Egypt. And they start to go back toward Egypt. And then the Egyptians get all excited because their one remaining idol, right? Bob Siphon, the god of the north. I mean, this, you know, the one Avodazora that Hashem didn't destroy during the ten plagues. They go, yes, Bob Siphon, of course. We should have been worshipping him all along. He's stronger than Hashem. So Hashem, meanwhile, just wanted to show them, you know, you had a chance right now just to say... We've learned from the ten plagues. It's not Baal it's Hashem. But, unfortunately, they, they didn't take advantage of that opportunity. But, on another level, the point that I really wanted to make was that the Jews start marching toward Egypt and then God says, turn around. Now go back. And I feel like that was a blessing for all of us for all time that if we ever start to go back toward our old ways, we were given the power to start to go back to our old ways and actually to turn around before we got back to our old ways. In other words, maybe sometimes we're heading back toward Egypt. Who says we have to get to Egypt? Just because we took a step in the wrong direction so we can turn around and we can make a step right back toward the right direction. And we were given that power when they turned around in the desert. So now... So now listen to this. Shmos, the book of Exodus, begins with the letter Vav. And Kabbalistically speaking, in the Sphira order, there's a correlation between the different Sphirot and the different, they call them the different shepherds, the different great, great leaders of the Jewish people. So six is the realm, what we call Yesod, which, which correlates with Yosef HaTzadik. Yosef, Yosef is this unbelievable, unbelievable, great, 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 great soul. <coughs> I heard from Reb Shlomo that when Yosef was in Egypt, he was the only Jew in exile at the time. 
Can you imagine? Because everyone else was in Israel at the time. At that time, he's the only Jew in exile. And Reb Shlomo said, it's from the power and the holy work that Yosef HaTzadik did that we got the strength to be able to survive as Jews in exile for all of history. Because he was the only one in exile at the time. How did you find the Jewish wife? Okay, so, so, so who's the second Jew who goes into exile? It's the daughter, it's the daughter of Dina from her relationship with Shechem. And she gets brought to Egypt also. And that's who he ends up marrying. So that's, that's according to the Medrash. That's, that's, that's how it works out. So, so, so anyway, Yosef, if you remember, Yaakov Avinu, Jacob, our forefather, when he died in Egypt, he said, bring me back and bury me in the Moris Hamach the cave of the patriarchs in Hebron, where Adam and Eve are buried, and where Abraham and Sarah are buried, and where Yitzchak and Rivka are buried, and some say the head of Esav, right? So, so Yaakov gets put back, back into the land. Yosef says something unbelievable. Yosef says, his dying request is, make sure my bones stay with you in Egypt, because the Redeemer is coming, you're going to be enslaved here, but you're going to be rescued, keep my bones in Egypt, and then when you leave, take me out with you. So, so you see there in a very visceral way how Yosef is staying with the Jewish people their entire time in exile in a very, very concrete way. The bones of Yosef. Okay? And in fact, one of the... There, there are all sorts of amazing things that are said about the bones of Yosef. One of them is they put them in an ark and they carried the bones of Yosef in an ark next to the Torah, which was carried in an ark. And the Gomorrah says, this, was a, this is an unbelievable tribute. Can you imagine that one's casket, so to speak, was carried alongside the golden Aaron Kodesh with the, with the tablets written with the finger of God right next to each other? And people would point to the bones of Yosef, that casket, and they would say, the one who is in there kept everything that's in there. Meaning Yosef kept the Torah. Not only that, but another exalted thing that they say about the bones of Yosef, that when the Red Sea saw the casket holding the bones of Yosef, it split. And I heard from Reb Shlomo, who said, I'm sure in the name of the Reb is, because Yosef was tempted so much to do wrong while he was in exile, and he, like... A temptation that was described like a hundred lions attacking him. And yet he was able to maintain his uprightness. So the sea said, that one who is capable of changing his nature, because he changed his nature, will change our nature. And so when the Red Sea saw the bones of Yosef, it split in tribute to Yosef. Put another way. Every time Yosef held himself back, he accumulated more and more and more potential energy. 
And that at the key moment that the Jewish people needed a salvation, it shot forth and split the sea. Another perspective on looking at it. <laughs> Not that he was the one who directed that energy, that came from above. But nonetheless, it was accessed on his behalf, in his name. By the way, when one goes to the gravesite of a tzaddik, and one prays, one doesn't pray to the tzaddik. Very important, very, very important. You don't say, please grant me my request, dead holy person. <laughs> Because that's called idol worship. <laughs> we don't do that. What we say is, please God, in the merit of everything this great Sadiq did, please, please grant my request. Grant my prayer. That, that's what, it sounds like a, it's a nuance, but it's a, it's a very big nuance. Very big difference. Do you not also ask the Tzaddik to daven for you? You can, you can do that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. But one doesn't ask the Tzaddik to be the one to answer the request. Because that's, that's God. Because that, that, that would give a power to him that, that he doesn't have. Um, so, um, so in other words, this, all this great merit that Yosef built up was accessed on behalf of the Jewish people. So now, with all that in mind, seeing the greatness of Yosef and the role that he played in the redemption, now we have a renewed, perhaps, appreciation of the fact that Sefer Shmos begins with the letter Vav. Vav correlating, as we said, Kabbalistically with Yosef. Number six in the sphere of chain. Vav is the number six. It's the sixth letter of the alphabet. The beginning of this book of redemption and of slavery begins with the letter Vav. It's like Yosef is right there at the gates. He's right there at the gates. And again, let's look on an even deeper level how he simultaneously represented redemption and exile within himself. Because Yosef is the same gematria as the word Zion, Zion. So in other words, even as he's out of the land, he's so connected even down to his bones, literally, to the land itself. And so it's appropriate that this book, which is simultaneously the book of slavery and the book of redemption, begins with Yosef Atzadik. And in fact, what's so interesting is if you look right in the, it says in the fifth Pusuk, which is just a, a, a couple of lines after the opening, it says all the persons... All the persons who emerged from Jacob's loins were 70 souls, and Yosef was in Egypt. So right at the beginning of the book, there's, there's a statement that I'm trying to make. It says, Yosef was still in Egypt. Yosef is still standing there at the gates. Now, now what are the very next words? Yosef died. Yosef was still in Egypt, beginning of the next Pesach. Yosef died and all his brothers in that entire generation. So it says, Yosef was in Egypt, this is hope, this is life, this is redemption, and then the next words, and Yosef died. So we see there's a very fine line to staying strong, staying sane, staying whole, while we're in exile. Because the very next words are, Yosef died. <laughs> 
So how do we say on the right side of this equation? How do we maintain our life outside of the land of Israel? Until Mashiach comes, how do we stay alive? This is the question. So we know this letter Vav also means to connect. And I always like to say, in the name of Rabbi Zeller, a bumper sticker that he once saw that I always liked, which was, it said, Make Vav, not war. (laughs) Because Vav means to connect, to join people together. Um, So... So, so let's look at this first word of Shmos again. Ve'ele. So we just said Vav means to connect. The word Ele is the Gematria 36. Now, we have to connect to the 36. That's what it says. How do we stay alive in exile? So I want to say we connect Vav Ele. We connect to the 36. Okay. 36 is, has a lot of different ideas attached to it. But let me focus in on one for a moment. It says in the Medrash that the Or Haganuz, the original light of creation, which is greater than the light of the sun and the moon, says exalted light burned for 36 hours. Okay? Now, isn't it interesting at the very beginning of the book of exile, the very first word, Hashem is hinting at this great light, which is covered over now, but which exists, which continues to exist. Like Reb Shlomo says, when the third base of Migdash, the third holy temple comes, we're going to be given the eyes to see that it was there all along, but we just couldn't see it. It was always there. This Or Haganuz, this exalted light which is going to return, which is going to correlate with the perfection of the world, which we're inexorably heading toward, whether it looks like it or not, amidst all the setbacks, we're on a freight train heading toward this perfection of the world. So we have to connect to this concept that the world is being perfected. We have to have hope. And this keeps us alive in exile. Now, I learned a whole lot just recently about these 36 hours, and I want to go more deeply into it and share it with you. I'll tell you my previous understanding, which is incorrect, and I'll tell you what the Medrash says about these 36 hours. Some very, very interesting things. My initial understanding was because it was this original light that it shone before the light of the sun and the moon at the very beginning of creation. That's not completely incorrect. In fact, there's an opinion, one opinion, that the original light actually shone for the first seven days of creation. So that is one opinion in the Medrash. The other opinion is that, no, it shone for 36 hours, and when did it begin to shine? Erev Shabbos. Chatzot on Friday. So it went from the 12 hours from midday, Friday afternoon, to Friday night, meaning Shabbos night, to Shabbos day. So it was the 36 hours of light that begins midday, Friday afternoon. Now this makes sense if you think about it, because the reason why God hid away the light, the Medrash says, 
is because he saw the Dor HaFlaga and the Dor HaMabul, the generation of the flood and the generation of the Tower of Babel. We'll explain what the unique wickedness of both of those generations stands for and how it correlates with today. I heard this from the Nova Minsker Rebbe, Rabbi Perlo, said the following, that the generation of the flood stands for uh, hedonism, that basically this is um, just a total upturning in, 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 in all of the norms of society. And, um, you know, in terms of stealing and theft and sexuality and, and everything like this, every, every aspect of it, this is what the um, generation of the flood was um, great at, let's say. You know, I was having my teeth cleaned the other day, and, um, you know, I guess I wasn't brushing in a particular area, and the dental hygienist said, you know, you have a lot of plaque there. And I started laughing. And she said, why are you laughing? And I said, I'm great at plaque. <laughs> so that, I said, that's probably someone with too much self-esteem. Someone who can say, I'm great at plaque. But, uh, <laughs> and she was a little befuddled. She would say, why, why, why would anyone say that? And I was like, well, all right. <laughs> anyway, so, so they were great. The generation of the flood was really great at hedonism. So great that God basically destroyed the world. Okay, so then, then we have the generation of, um, of Babel, the Tower of Babel. A very different form of um, wickedness, if you will, although I'm not a fan of that word, but... It's the first one that comes to mind. Um, so what did they do? They had, they, they corrupted the world, not necessarily by being bad people. In fact, it says that there was tremendous achtus, there was tremendous unity among them. And in fact, God gave them a lot of blessings because there was so much unity among them. So where, where did they go wrong? What do they stand for? They stand for corrupt ideologies. Because basically, they had their own vision of truth. And they said, okay, we're going to do it this way. And so these are really, and, and what's, what's what, to me, what was so striking about that, that idea was that sometimes wickedness, if you will, or falsehood or corruption is introduced into society not necessarily by really scuzzy people. In other words, it's not just the pornographers, so to speak, who introduce um, really distasteful things into society. Oftentimes, it's intellectuals who will do it, who you know seem very respectable. You know, they've got their tweed jacket and their patches on the elbow. And they look like very distinguished, respectable people, and yet they're bringing ideas into the world that aren't true. They just simply aren't true. And it leads to a breakdown of the fabric of truth. Because they have such um, a distinguished reputation, people look to them and they admire them and they respect them. Ah, professor, whatever it is. So these are two sides of these are two sides of how the world can come become corrupted. 
And they're symbolized by the generation of the flood and the generation of the Tower of Babel. So it says, God looked into the future and he saw both of these generations and so he decided to put away, he decided to put away the light because it wasn't right that people who weren't on the level should be able to bask in it. Now listen to this. Now listen to this. So, so Adam Harishon and Chava, Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. You know, by the way, I was talking with someone and they said, oh, Adam and Eve, that's Jewish mythology. And I said, I believe in Adam and Eve. And he looked at me. You do? <laughs> I said, yeah, well, look, you know. And he said, oh, Adam and Eve, and the world is billions of years old and everything like that. I said, well, look, so, so what does evolution say? That God made a, an amoeba, and then he made a fish, and then he made a monkey, and then he made people, right? So if you believe in God, and you believe in an all-powerful God, why couldn't God just make people, and a monkey, and fish, and an amoeba at the same time? Right? I mean, what's the, what's the problem exactly? Well, what about the fact that the world is so old? Well, the sun and the moon weren't put into the sky until, is it the fourth day? Something like that? So the Vilna Gon, I heard in his name say that between the time that the world was created until the sun and the moon were fixed in the sky, which starts to introduce an idea, according to this opinion, of a 24-hour day, there could be billions of years in between the two. There's no problem with having an understanding of the Torah and the, and, and the creation as it's written and what science says today. There's no problem with this. So, so Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve were blessed with this 36 hours of light. And, and there are two opinions you should know. One opinion says that even though they were sentenced to leave the Garden of Eden before Shabbos, that they spent all of Shabbos in the Garden of Eden. You know? And, and it didn't get dark because, see, so when Shabbos goes out, it starts to get dark. And Adam Arishon has never experienced darkness before. Because what did we just say? The 36 hours of light started pretty much when he was created. So that means that first nighttime wasn't night for him. Right? So he's never seen night before. And now, 36 hours later, it gets dark. And he thinks he's destroyed the world. He's terrified. He thinks that the snake is going to kill him. All right? So then God teaches him how to make fire. And so when we say the blessing over fire, Saturday night, Motsi Shabbos, when Shabbos goes out, that was the restoration of light in a different way. In a different way. All right, now we'll get deeper and we're going to... doesn't happen too often tie the whole shear together <laughs> from the beginning when we talked about how truth, remember we said how truth 
starts from the place of duality, starts from the place of being born in this world of hiddenness. Remember, the Torah begins with the letter Bez, which is the numerical equivalent of the number two. And if you add those up sequentially, you'll always get back to truth, right? It starts with the number two. It starts with duality. Now listen to this. It says, the word or in Hebrew is spelled with the letter Aleph. Okay? And that spells, or, or means light in Hebrew. Okay? If you spell it with the letter Ayin, they're both silent letters, so they're sort of interchangeable. Ayin and Aleph. If you spell the word or with the letter Ayin, it means skin. Okay? So, our understanding is, is that Adam HaRishon, originally he was a being of light, of or with an olive, he was a being of light. And then, after they ate from the tree of knowledge, he became this being of or now, with the letter ayin, with skin. Because it says that Hashem made skin garments for them. So the easy way to understand it, the less deep way of understanding is, is that they always had skin, and then he made just sort of like a leather garment for them, like he made clothes for them, okay? But on a deeper level, it means that he made actually skin for them. They went from a creature of light to a creature of skin. Now, in the end of days, in the end of days, the Bnei Yisachar quotes the Shalah HaKodesh, and he says the following. He says, we're going to get back from being creatures who are created with skin, the way we appear now, with the letter Ayin, right? Or, which means skin, spelled with an Ayin. And we're going to go back to being creatures of light. But here's the kicker. The creatures of light that we're going to become is going to be higher than Adam HaRishon was created originally. Because we've gone from the base to the Aleph, because we've gone from duality, from being outside of the Garden of Eden, back to the Garden of Eden, the level of light that we're going to experience is going to be an even higher level of light. I heard Rabbi Meir Fun say the following, if you take a vessel in this world, with the eyes of this world, and you drop it and you break it, and you put it back together again, it never looks as good as it did before it got broken. But if you take a vessel and you break it and you put it back together again, from the eyes of heaven, it looks even better than it did before it broke. <laughs> all of us are broken. We're all broken. This whole world is a world of tikkun. I heard Reb Shlomo say this whole world is like a hospital clinic. Everybody here is here to fix something. You know, Reb Shlomo once talked to people in jail, and he says, look, at least you guys know the truth. <laughs> The rest of us just think we're not in jail. <laughs> but God called this world good. The Torah, the Torah perspective is this world is good. It's not, this world is not bad. This world is good. But it's good heading toward getting better and better and better and better. And we have to realize that we have this awesome opportunity from this place of duality, from this place of bet, from this place of seeing opposites, from this place of hiddenness, to be able to, like Moshe Rabbeinu, to look around, to investigate, to see that there's an order in this world, to see that there's a divine plan and that it applies to us in our own lives too, and then to reach out 
to reach out to that oneness, to the letter Aleph. And then we don't just reach the truth, but we get even better than we were when we were initially created. Have a great week.